Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com or have left for me in the comment sections of my Q&A videos. Hey, everybody. Uh, a lot of things to go over, so let me just jump right into it this week. This is episode number 401 of our uh, Critical Q&A series. I have answered uh, thousands of Scientology and cult and coercive control related questions on this channel, and I hope you will take advantage of the immense library of information available to you on my channel. I know it's kind of hard to navigate with so much content, but unlike other YouTube channels all over YouTube on all kinds of subjects, this channel is a permanent library of information for you. This is not flash in the pan, next week this video doesn't matter kind of video work that I've put together here. And I really want you guys to understand the context of my channel compared to other channels that you see all throughout internet, uh, YouTube. Um, so um, there is uh, some new content I'm going to tease here that is coming a new show that will be coming uh, to this channel uh, in a week. Um, and I'm very much looking forward to that. This channel is going straight up and vertical. <laughs> and uh, that's a little Scientology phrase in joke there. So uh, anyway, you guys will be seeing an additional weekly show that will start not this next week, but the week after. And uh, anyway, and I'll, I'll tell you about more of that as, as the time comes closer. But you'll want to... Um, be aware of that on Mondays. There will be, so I post regular uh, show. We do a Friday critical uh, conversation show, which call-in show. We do the Saturday Sensibly Speaking podcast. Uh, there is this show, Critical Q&A, on Sundays. And on Mondays, there will be a new show. And it'll be about a 20 to 30 minute a week show. So it'll be uh, easy to consume, I hope. I wanted to also put out a plug for Patreon and support for this channel. I usually do this at the end of the show, but sometimes I need to throw it in at the beginning because you guys need to know this channel, all of my work, everything I'm doing, you guys fund it. You're the ones who keep this thing going. I, and I really need to emphasize that. So if you like this channel, like what I'm doing, think it's worth supporting, think that it's worth, you know, buying me a cup of coffee or whatever. Um, and it literally, it's what keeps the lights on here. So um, anyway, just want to throw that out there. Please join me on Patreon if that is something you are interested in able to do. Um, I also wanted to put out a plug. I need to do this uh, frequently that I do consulting. So if you are looking for professional personal consultation, not therapy, I am not a licensed or registered psychologist. That's not the kind of consultation I do. I do consultation for post-cult recovery, and I do consultation for people who are looking for help with advice and direction on how to deal with friends or family who are in coercive control situations, whether that's a domestic situation or a cult situation or some other kind of thing. You can contact me and I can help you with that. And, um, and bring my knowledge and, and experience to the problem and maybe help you out with that. And finally, um, yeah, so I wanted to also let you guys know there was a two-hour podcast, the Sensibly Speaking podcast dropped yesterday with a wonderful, one of my favorite interviews I have done with a woman named Susan Dones, a, a Nexium survivor. Uh, this channel does not just cover Scientology stuff. I go into all kinds of culty stuff and um, use Scientology at this point mainly as a kind of 
case study or example of how this stuff perpetuates throughout the the cult world or throughout you know uh, the world through coercive control so that all being said who tried to get all that in as quickly as possible let's get on with your questions Nick C. On this channel, both the host and the viewers wonder what, if anything, can be done about the disconnection policy in Scientology and similar practices in other cultic organizations. To that end, what do you think about the situation with Jehovah's Witnesses in Norway? For the benefit of fellow viewers, the background, a few months ago, the Norwegian government notified the JWs that their policy of disfellowshipping the apostates is in contravention of Norwegian human rights law and Norwegian laws on the rights of children. JWs ignored the warning, so the government, after a waiting period, removed their religious exemption. One important consequence of that, marriages performed by JWs after they lost the exemption would not be legally recognized in Norway. Any thoughts? Hi, Nick. Thank you for asking me this. And in the time that you sent me this question, and I've had a little bit of a delay in getting to it, Norway has reversed or at least put a hold on that um, that banning or barring. Um, and here is um, one. Oh, in fact, here is an article by the number one chief cult apologist, Massimo Intravigne, or however you say his name, Massimo is always how I've referred to him, who writes an article for um, his blog, Better Bitter Winter, uh, where he describes this as a draconian and unjust decision by the county governor of Oslo and Viking, uh, Viking who uh, has been blocked by quick judicial intervention, the fight, however, continues. And here is, I wanted to, um, so to, to put all this in context, right? Norway rightfully looks at the shunning or disfellowship policy, the breaking up, the forceful breaking up of families and relationships because of religious cultic belief. The, the Norway government looked at that and went, you know what, that's not cool. That is actually a violation of people's human rights and it shouldn't be that draconian organizations, uh, despite what Massimo and his cult apologia, um, it shouldn't be that draconian, totalist, authoritarian cults get to tell their members who and who they and who not they can associate with. This is a standard practice in, in uh, far too many authoritarian cults out there that they take it upon themselves as a group to dictate who you can and cannot connect with or be have a relationship with. That is a clear-cut violation of human rights. Just one up one side and down the other. And the endless amounts of frustration that I experience uh, personally and in trying to expose and educate people about this are the religious apologists, the cult apologists, who come out of the woodwork every time something like this happens and Massimo is at the top of the list of people who cannot wait to defend these inhuman and human right violation practices. They go out of their way and actually get paid vast sums of money by these cults to apologize for them. And uh, here is what Massimo had to say about this, just to give you a flavor of, of why this is so frustrating for me. Um. 
So he goes into how it is xenophobic and religiophobic to uh, be... Uh, it's religious discrimination is how the counter argument is framed and how it has been framed to make the Norway government say, you know what, let's review this, let's step back. You know what, JWs, you are still religiously exempt. You do still get to practice uh, religious ceremonies here in Norway. And he says, there is, however... One religious organization, some Norwegian media and state agencies have shown consistent hostility to for almost 25 years. The first media campaign started in 1989, investigating the reasons for this hostility. And this is a very important sentence. Investigating the reasons for this hostility would go beyond the limits of a magazine article. In other words, Massimo is not going to engage as a cult apologist He's not going to engage with the actual arguments of human rights violations. He's not going to touch it because he knows he can't, because he knows there is no argument against that. It is a human rights violation. He just casually brushes that under the rug. And he then goes on to say, it seems, however, that one element has been accused that accusations by apostate ex-members, i.e., those former members who become militant opponents of the group they have left, notice the wordage, militant opponents, were taken at face value. You mean somebody actually believed the stories of abuse that they endured under the hands of the JWs? What awful people to, uh, to take their stories at face value. Oh, my God. What a crime the Norway government has committed in listening to people who are victimized by a religious cult and believed. Oh, how dare they? A and here's where all of the academic apologists and academic literature comes into play. You hear me talk about this, and you guys think, I think a lot of you think this isn't important. It doesn't matter. It's just a bunch of ivory tower academics arguing with each other. Who cares? No, this is how public policy is decided, guys. These academics are the ones who come out of the woodwork to defend the JWs and go to bat for them and go to the courts and say, you court people, you judges, don't know what you're talking about. We are academics with letters after our name and degrees, and we do lectures and we write papers. So you need to listen to us. And we're going to tell you a significant body of international sociological, sociological literature on apostates was ignored. This literature has warned for decades that apostate and ex-member are not synonymous, that apostates are only a small percentage of ex-members of a given religion, and that while not deprived of interest, their accounts are more expressions of subjective discomfort and anger than objective depictions of the religious organization they have left. Catch the language? I hope you get the details there because this is exactly how these kinds of efforts by governments are thwarted. They are stopped because Massimo and his gang of apologists cannot step in fast enough to stop the law from actually enacting human rights.
This is how it happens. So I don't know what's going to happen in Norway at this point. They took a positive step forward listening to the victims of these cults, in this case, the JWs. And here come all the academics to say, oh, no, 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 you guys are wrong. This is religious discrimination. And how dare you? And in fact, what you're doing is the human rights violation. That's what happens in this. And that is why you see me endlessly frustrated to the point where I became somebody who could speak academically about this. And even there, I am experiencing troubles because, you know, if you're not part of the club, if you're not in the clique, if you don't have a job at a university or you don't have access to the literature, you don't get to be part of this club and you don't get to write papers and you don't get to get grants. And you, it, it's a very, very difficult world to get into even after you get a degree. I have come to learn that in the last year where I have been endlessly frustrated at not having access to the literature because I can't pay for it because I don't have the money to. And I don't have any, any position within academia working at a university because this is what I do for a living. And I don't want to go quit doing this so that I can go be, you know, a lecturer or a professor or assistant professor at some university. That's not my career goal here. But I could contribute, but I can't, right? And so it's this little boys club and girls club where it's very exclusive and they play by their rules and you don't get to be part of that. So you don't have the power to fight back against it. This is the dark side of academia and it is dark and it is and there is a lot of money that changes hands uh, with these guys and the cults. The cults give grant money. The cults give secret research money. The cults send money to these academics through front organizations that are, in, you know, that are not transparent and not easily traceable. And there are other reasons. Some of these academics are just completely twisted in their views on what religious freedom is. And they think that Scientology and they judge the JWs because they are religious organizations get a full pass on any and all abuses, including to children. These academic apologists don't care. They would rather see a hundred children mutilated than see an organization like the JWs uh, called on the carpet for their abuse. That's really where it's at. And I'm just taking, I'm letting my hair down on this in answer to you, Nick, because I, um, I'm sick and tired of it, right? I look this up and I see this is the first thing that comes up. Massimo, I have to read this guy defending the JWs, right? And that's what happens. And that's how they get away with it. These academics hold a lot more power than you guys ever really realize. And I try to bring this to light for this exact reason. But, you know, who, who cares, right? Who does anything about it? So you can, you can definitely sense my frustration here, um, you know, because I am trying to do something about it. And, and, I, and I, to be fair, lots of people are trying to do something about it. Us ex-cult members are the ones who try to do something about it. What do we get for our troubles? We get labeled as apostates, as bitter, evil people who just have axes to grind. You're goddamn right we have axes to grind because we were abused, falsely imprisoned, psychologically tormented, physically abused, often sexually abused. 
denied education, denied food, denied sleep, denied relationships. This is, this is just the, the, the run-of-the-mill list of things that happen with every single one of these destructive cults. And these apologists can't rush out fast enough to defend them. So that's the actual war. That's the cult war that has been going on for decades. It started in the 1970s. I even broke this down on an episode of the um, Fair Game podcast with Leah and Mike, and we talked about this. And Mike knows all about this. He's been, he was, uh, when he was in Scientology, he was one of the people who would work with these academic apologists for Scientology. And he knows exactly who these people are and how they operate, right? So, so it's not like we haven't run into this before or talked about this before, but it bears repeating often. This is how countries are thwarted in their ability to fight back against cults. So there's my answer. It's not a great one. I know it's not a sunny and light one, but it is the reality of the situation. And those are my thoughts on this at this moment. Thanks for asking, Nick. Steve Wood, why is it that Scientology goes to such enormous lengths to reclaim escapees? Because clearly they are now suppressive persons, so why do they? Does anyone stop to think as to why these people are trying to escape in the first place? There's an incredible amount of resources, manpower, and time spent in tracking these people down to make them return, so can you please explain the reasoning behind all of this? Absolutely, Steve. In fact, the easiest way for me to explain the reasoning behind this is to go to the scriptures of Scientology. And in this case, I am reading to you from the book Introduction to Scientology Ethics. This is a book by L. Ron Hubbard. It's a compilation of policies and bulletins that Hubbard wrote over the years having to do with Scientology and how it regards ethics. Uh, matters of right and wrong conduct, as L. Ron Hubbard uh, defines this. So let me just have L. Ron Hubbard explain it to you, and then I'll give you a little commentary on this. Scientology technology includes the factual explanation of departures, sudden and relatively unexplained, from sessions, posts, jobs, locations, and areas. This is one of the things man thought he knew all about and therefore never bothered to investigate. Yet this, amongst all other things, gave him the most trouble. Man had it all explained to his own satisfaction, and yet his explanation did not cut down the amount of trouble which came from the feeling of having to leave. For instance, man has been frantic about the high divorce rate, about the high job turnover in plants, about labor unrest, and many other items all stemming from the same source, sudden departures or gradual departures. We have the view of a person who has a good job, who probably won't get a better one, suddenly deciding to leave and going. We have the view of a wife with a perfectly good husband and family up and leaving it all. We see a husband with a pretty and attractive wife breaking up the affinity and departing. In Scientology, we have the phenomenon of pre-clears in session or students on courses deciding to leave and never coming back, and that gives us more trouble than most other things all combined. 
Man explained this to himself by saying that things were done to him, which he would not tolerate, and therefore he had to leave. Yeah, imagine that. But if this were the explanation, all man would have to do would be to make working conditions, marital relationships, jobs, courses, and sessions all very excellent, and the problem would be solved. But on the contrary, a close examination of working conditions and marital relationships demonstrates that improvement of conditions often worsens the amount of blow-off, as one could call this phenomenon. And that, my friends, is utter horseshit. It doesn't worsen things when you improve conditions for people. Do you see the twist there? It's twisted logic. But, and this is just the beginning of where the twists come in, okay? But you see how he's writing here. Oh, you can improve things and make things better and people still leave. Yeah, maybe because... Anyway. And here's the example he gives. And you people, anybody who's uh, looked, this stu- looked at the actual history and story of this knows that what L. Ron Hubbard is writing here, excuse me, is complete horseshit. Probably the finest working conditions in the world were achieved by Mr. Hershey of chocolate bar fame for his plant workers. Yet they revolted and even shot at him. This, in turn, led to an industrial philosophy that the worse workers were treated, the more willing they were to stay, which in itself is as untrue as the better they are treated, the faster they blow off. One can treat people so well that they grow ashamed of themselves, knowing they don't deserve it, that a blow-off is precipitated. Yeah, you can treat somebody so well that they have to leave you. What the fuck? And certainly one can treat people so badly that they have no choice but to leave. Now, notice he actually gives a little bit there, but, but... These are extreme conditions, and in between these, we have the majority of departures. More little twists and lies. The auditor is doing his best for the pre-clear, and yet the pre-clear gets meaner and meaner and blows the session. The wife is doing her best to make a marriage, and the husband wanders off on the trail of a tart. The manager is trying to keep things going, and the worker leaves. These, the unexplained, disrupt organizations and lives, and it's time we understood them. And here's the big, bold, all capital statement. People leave because of their own overts and withholds. This is the factual fact and the hardbound rule. A man with a clean heart can't be hurt. A man with a clean heart can't be hurt. Are you kidding me right now with this? The man or woman who must, must, must become a victim and depart is departing because of his or her own overts and withholds. It doesn't matter whether the person is departing from a town or a job or a session. The cause is the same. Almost anyone, 
no matter his, and, and get this, okay, really think about the privilege of this statement. Almost anyone, no matter his position, can remedy a situation no matter what's wrong if he or she really wants. This is Scientology scripture I am reading here. Scientologists believe every word of this. I believed every word of this. It's what kept me in Scientology for far more years than I should have been there. When the person no longer wants to remedy it, his own overt acts, sins, right? We all know what overts are. It's overts are sins. They're, they're moral transgressions. They're violations of the rules. You, it's you breaking the law. When the person no longer wants to remedy it, his own overt acts and withholds, you know, you, you do a bad thing and then you withhold it. You don't tell anybody. That's a withhold. His own overt acts and withholds against the others involved in the situation have lowered his own ability to be responsible for it. See, Hubbard says that responsibility and willing to be responsible for something has everything to do with how many crimes you've committed against a thing. The more you mistreat something, abuse something, don't want to deal with something, um, you know, treat it badly, the less responsible you want to be for that thing. Therefore, he or she does not remedy the situation. See, it's all, it's all blame the victim. Oh, you didn't remedy the situation you were in because of your own overts, and that's why you left. Departure is the only apparent answer. To justify the departure, the person blowing off dreams up things done to him in an effort to minimize the overt by degrading those it was done to. The mechanics involved are quite simple. Okay? Now, let me give you this last bit to fully answer your question, Steve, as to why do Scientologists go so crazy to pursue these people who leave, who take off, and bring them back? Why? Why do they do that? Here's why. Quote, it is an irresponsibility on our part now that we know this to permit this much irresponsibility. When a person threatens to leave a town, post, job, session, or class, the only kind thing to do is to get off that person's overt acts and withholds. To do less sends the person off with the feeling of being degraded and having been harmed. You see, they think it's a kindness to hunt somebody down, stalk them until they relent, and physically, if necessary, drag them back into the church to get them into a room, lock them in there with a ream of paper, and make them write down all of their crimes, or make them hold cans and interrogate them until they confess to all of their crimes. That is a kindness as far as Scientologists are concerned. Do you understand? It's that twisted. I keep trying to get across, you know, the crazy mirror world insanity that is Scientology logic. And I hope this does it. I mean, I'm finally down to like just reading to you straight from the scriptures here. Like, this is what they're taught is true. These are the unalterable, irrefutable words of L. Ron Hubbard. It is not to be argued with. 
If you have a problem with this, it's because of your overts and your misunderstood words. And it's a kindness on my part to force you to confess. And this is how Scientology has become a confession culture. This, these writings. Oh, you want to leave? Oh, well, the only reason for that is because you're overts. It couldn't be that you were abused. It couldn't be you were sexually assaulted. It couldn't be that you were psychologically tormented. It couldn't be that you were physically abused. Oh, no, no, no. It's none of that. Oh, no, because Scientology is the most ethical group on the planet, right? We're nothing but rainbows and butterflies here. And if you think otherwise, you're the one with the problem, not us. But we will kindly and and with the magnanimity and beneficence, we will help you to see the error of your ways. Oh, man, I'm telling you, this is exactly how it is in Scientology. It's it's. Very, 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 very draconian. It's 1984-ish, right? It's freedom is slavery. It's ignorance is knowledge. It's, you know, it's, it's that kind of world. That's why we say Scientology is so destructive. It's packed with writings just like this that twist your mind all around into a pretzel and everything is your fault. Everything is your fault if you don't like it. And if you do like it, that's all L. Ron Hubbard's fault because he is source. This is the kind of stuff that keeps me going. This is the kind of stuff that keeps me fighting this and trying to educate and expose this stuff for you guys, right? Is just how awful this really is and how, how messed up it makes people's minds when they accept this is true. Right? This opens the door to any number of abuses in the name of getting you to clean up your act. And this is one of the main justifications for why Scientologists think that false imprisonment and locking, you know, locking people up and making them confess, this is what's behind it. So you asked, Steve, and that is the answer. And it's a very, very unfortunate one, and it's a very, very sad one, but it's something every Scientologist subscribes to. And there you go. Max Zimdars, can you please share your insight on which regions of the United States Scientology has the strongest and weakest presence, i.e. Pacific Northwest, the South, Midwest, East Coast, etc.? I would love to hear your input on the reasons why Scientology targets certain areas to open new orgs. Does Scientology try to maintain a presence in regions based upon certain demographic factors, such as political affiliation, average income, ethnic diversity, religion, etc.? Okay, well, I can speak most coherently on this in terms of numbers and my experience with Scientology based on the Western United States um, or the United States maybe overall. I am not as familiar with Europe, uh, Asia, or Australia in terms of numbers, but I do know for a fact that the Western United States is the, or the United States has the largest concentration numbers-wise of Scientologists. No question about it. That's absolutely true. So I never really have to worry that much about Europe or the UK or Australia because the number of Scientologists in those regions is measured in thousands, not even tens of thousands, as, as I understand it. 
um, Canada as well, right? It's a, it's a sprinkling of people. So when you come down to the United and and when we go into Latin America or South America and Mexico, then you have some numbers, but not again, not comparable to what we see in the United States. So what I do know for a fact, because I used to run numbers and demographic data and um, and where the Scientologists were, I actually when I was a a Sea Org manager, I used, excuse me, um, Microsoft Access and mapping software to actually literally map out where everybody was. And so I know that the highest concentrations of Scientologists in the United States are Clearwater, Florida, Los Angeles, California, Oregon, uh, Portland, the Portland area and its surrounding areas, and the Bay Area uh, around San Francisco and Sacramento, San Jose, Los Gatos, that whole region, um, that's all packed with, uh, with a high concentration of Scientologists. Those are your four main regions. Uh, East Coast is a smattering here and there, right? New York is not anything really to shake a stick at compared to, say, Los Angeles or Clearwater. And, of course, over the years, those numbers have declined. I was running those numbers back in the 90s and early 2000s as a Scientology manager. Since then, we have seen, you know, their numbers go significantly down. Um, religious surveys and census data and stuff like that gives us that information. Scientology doesn't because they are not transparent with their numbers. Uh, so as to, you know, why Scientology targets certain areas to open new orgs? Well, Harlem was a new org that they opened and, um, Englewood, California was a new org that they opened. And those two orgs were open because they were catering to black demographic regions and Scientology had a very white problem. And, uh, and David Miscavige wanted to solve that and did so by allying with Nation of Islam, another hate group and incredibly destructive cult uh, that caters to and sort of, uh, you know, fosters, uh, you know, African-American membership and has a, a is a horribly anti-Semitic hate group. Um, so, yeah, of course, they were a perfect match for Scientology and and sort of helped solve the 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 white problem in Scientology, because now it's like, well, look at all these black allies we have with the Nation of Islam. So that's what uh, Im- sort of impelled the funding of Harlem and Englewood. And even then, it took them like 10 years to get those orgs open. It was a monumental effort, and so much money got sunk into that for so no return on investment. I mean, they're really not getting anything out of those organizations. They also opened up one in Kaohsiung, um, I think in, um, in uh, Taiwan, and um, I am geographically challenged when it comes to Asia, so you'll have to forgive me if I mess up on that stuff. Um, not something I've ever really paid a lot of attention to, frankly, because it's just another little tiny contingent of Scientologists. But that area tends to feed Australia with uh, Scientologists. A lot of new staff and Sea Org members come out of um that area out of out of the Kaohsiung region, right? So that's why they invested a little bit there and built some organizations there. But most of that was building on missions. Missions were already there, and missions are su- are subunit organizations of Scientology. We've talked about those. They're even on my Critical Clips channel. What's a mission? What's a Scientology mission? And um, 
And a lot of orgs were, were built from missions. The Church of Scientology International just looked at various missions and turned them into organizations, full-blown churches of Scientology. That's where San Diego came from and uh, the Church of Scientology, the Valley and Santa Barbara and uh, Orange County. And a lot of the Bay Area organizations were originally Scientology missions. And they were started back in the 50s and 60s, mostly in the 60s, actually, by auditors who had trained under L. Ron Hubbard and went out to start Scientology in their area. So it was a little random as to where they showed up. Certainly major cities were represented like Los Angeles and New York and San Francisco, but also you have weird, you know, and and Salt Lake City, maybe Kansas City. Um, But the missions that that tended to rise up in the weird areas, right, like on Montana or, um, you know, some outskirt kind of place, um, you know, in Utah or something, they never really took off enough to justify turning them into class five orgs, the next you know level up from missions. Um, missions were also considered, just to put it in perspective, missions were also used to be called franchises like McDonald's. I mean, that's kind of how the, the operation worked. So, um, so it really depended on, you know, who was where as to which missions they were starting. And then those, you know, again, getting turned into orgs. So it's not really based on any kind of demographic surveys or, you know, anything like that. It's really just kind of almost luck of the draw. Um, but mostly they were aiming for trying to open up orgs in major cities. But you have tons and tons of cities all over the U.S., where there's absolutely no Scientology presence or very, very minimal uh, presence at all. I mean, there's no Scientology in North or South Dakota. There's no Scientology in Montana. There's no Scientology in Wyoming. There's no Scientology in Idaho. There's one organization in all of Oregon and all of Washington State. In all of Utah, there's one organization. In all of New Mexico, there's one organization. So, you know, it's, it's very few and far between uh, when it comes to that. And, um, and they're not expanding. They're not even trying to expand these days. All this fanfare about the ideal orgs and opening them up and all of that, it's all a real estate scam and it's all a tax uh, shelter scam and it's all just, you know, let's, let's uh, you know, hide the money and, and, and move the money around and launder the money and work the money over and massage the money so that we can get more money. All just a con. That's all it is. And so uh, if you're trying to look at Scientology's growth or expansion as though there's some sense or order to it or there's some kind of master plan, there isn't. There never has been. It's all been by whim and uh, opportunity and following the money and following um, where, you know, maybe a random, you know, mission might start doing well. Ooh, they're doing something good. Let's turn them into an org, you know, and that's kind of how it goes. Kareem, something that seems counterproductive to me is to reveal the Xenu stuff as early as OT3 when it may scare members away since it's such a brutal leap into unadulterated sci-fi. Wouldn't OT7 or OT8 people be more able to cope with this newfound weirdness? Or is it that LRH was indeed such a true believer in his own mythos that he thought every new OT3 member would be automatically on board with galactic overlords and volcanoes and all? 
What an interesting question, because I, you seem to have the idea that OT3 is something that is new for Scientologists or that that's that they're relatively new as as people who are getting onto OT3. And I can tell you that nobody gets to OT3 until they're involved with Scientology for literally years. It's impossible to get to OT3 in a couple months or in a year. It would be damn near impossible to do that. You would have to be full, full time. You would have to be the fastest pre-clearer who's ever existed and you would have to have an unlimited bank account because it costs hundreds of thousands of dollars to get to the point where you're going to be given OT3. So you are well in. You are an embedded Scientologist. You have been run through. Well, I, I made a couple of videos breaking down the entire process of the bridge to total freedom. This is a two-part video, and I break every service down that you have to do just to get onto the OT levels. And it's a lot. Even if you don't do any of the classwork, a minimum of the classwork, you still have to do five or six classes. You have to do all this uh, hundreds of hours, if not thousands of hours of Scientology auditing to achieve the state of clear. And then you start getting into the confidential stuff. And you and before you get to OT3, you have to do OT1 and OT2. Now, OT1 is a walk in the park, but almost literally. OT2, though, is a gruel. It's a grueling uh, run. It's 90 hours of training alone, including films, watching L. Ron Hubbard audit himself and explain solo auditing and explain all kinds of stuff that's gone on on the whole track in your, in your distant memory off world. I mean, you are steeped in this stuff before you get to OT3. The big reveal of OT3 is not volcanoes and Xenu. I keep saying this and, and, and it's somehow that it doesn't get through or people don't, you know, hear what I'm saying earlier. And so, you know, and that's fine. That's totally fine. I'm, I'm willing to repeat myself, but really take advantage of the library of knowledge that is my channel. I've explained this so many times. Xenu and volcanoes, Scientologists don't care about that. It's the body thetans. That's the important part of OT3. The sci-fi story is take it or leave it. Some Scientologists don't care at all about that. Some people get to OT3, read that, realize it's insane, and leave. Some people do that, but not the majority of people because of all the loyalty checks and money and time they've invested, they're willing to at least suspend their disbelief and go, well, does it work? And they go into an auditing session and audit themselves, and the e-meter needle moves around, and they interpret that as, oh, well, I asked myself the question, and the needle moved. Therefore, I must have body thetans, and it must all be true. And they, and, they are, and, they, and they are motivated to reason themselves into believing that after they've paid all that money and spent all those years getting there. It's that kind of a deal. You know, it's, we're talking about sunk cost fallacy. We're talking about appeal to authority. We're talking about, um, yeah, and we're talking about the goal, the emotional need of purpose and goal and getting to spiritual freedom and immortality. That's not a small thing. Scientologists are going for godhood. 
And Xenu and the volcanoes is, oh, okay, sure. You want me to believe that on my way to becoming a god? Okay, I can do that. Sure, Xenu and the volcanoes, right? Who cares, right? But let's get those body thetans audited. And all of OT3, OT4, OT5, uh, and OT7, all of those levels are about nothing but auditing body thetans. So OT3 is just the beginning of the road of auditing body thetans. And OT6, by the way, I didn't skip that by accident. OT6 is a course that teaches you how to audit OT7. So that's why it's not necessarily in and of itself an auditing level. It's a, it's a class level mostly. And you learn how to do the processes of OT7, which are different from the processes of OT5, which are different from the processes of OT4, which are different from OT3, but they're all addressing one thing, body thetans. Okay, so so that's the background on that. And I hope that answers your question, Kareem. Confused atheist. I have a question that I would like to hear your opinion on. I'm an atheist, but I respect other people's choice to believe what they want. But I am often confused by how often one encounters the phenomenon. Please pray for him or her. Most often it occurs when someone is critically ill and the risk of dying is clearly increased. Then you usually hear or read on Facebook that everyone should pray for the sick person's recovery. If the sick person survives and recovers, it can be explained by the large amount of prayers to God who healed the person. But if the person dies, it is said that God wanted to bring him home to sit by his side in heaven. Personally, I feel great powerlessness and sadness when a relative or friend is seriously ill. While at the same time, I accept that everything that happens can be explained scientifically, even if I cannot understand that information at the time. But for believers, they feel that God knows best and that he always makes the right choice. So why ask people to pray to God then if God will make his choice anyway, and that choice can never be the wrong decision? Is religion a way for people to protect themselves from what we don't understand emotionally? All right. Thank you very much for this question. And basically, you nailed it. The answer to your question is the last sentence of it. Uh, is religion a way to for people to protect themselves from what we don't understand emotionally? Yes, it is. Now, is that's, that's not the only thing that religion does. Do not even get that that's what I'm saying. I'm saying that in this context of why do people ask for prayers and, you know, thoughts and prayers and all of that, well, one of the reasons for that is because they are experiencing the five stages of grief. So let's take a look at this emotionally. What's going on with the person emotionally? Regardless of whether God does or doesn't exist, that's no part of my answer here, okay? What I'm going to talk about is the human side of this. You can believe whatever you want. You all know I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. But I do recognize that religion fulfills a lot of emotional needs, and when somebody is threatened with loss or is, you know, impending doom of some kind, they experience a certain uh, series of steps and they're not necessarily linear and not everybody necessarily experiences this. But this is my explanation for what you're asking about the whole let's pray for this. What is that? Well, I'll tell you exactly what it is. It's one of the five stages of grief and how we deal with grief and process it. And specifically, this is we have denial, anger. 
So there's a denial. No, no, no. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen, right? And then there's anger. Why is this happening? And then there's bargaining. That's number three. Who are you bargaining with when it comes to death or somebody dying? The big man, right? He's the guy who's in charge. And you're in an emotionally vulnerable place where you don't want this happening. You've already tried to deny it or you know, maybe you have. You've already gotten angry about it. And now you want to figure out, well, how can I make this different? What can I do? What can I offer? You ever wonder about offerings to the gods and all that? It's bargaining. It's that step of our process of trying to deal with that with, with which we cannot stop or control. A terminal illness is not something we can stop. Dying is certainly something we cannot stop. We have no control over it whatsoever. We can only halt the progress of it or slow the progress of it, but we can't stop it. Halt, I didn't mean halt, I meant slow down. Because it's coming and it's coming for all of us. And so you will find people dealing with this in lots of different ways and bargaining is one of them. And that's that, you know, again, that emotional need, you know, for comfort and understanding and purpose and meaning. These all combine into this concept of God and prayer and I can do something about this. Maybe he will listen to me. Maybe they will answer me. Maybe there's a way of changing this situation. And if it changes, oh, well, clearly I didn't do it. Must have been the big guy again, right? And we thank God for that. You know, and unfortunately, in such circumstances, doctors and nurses tend to get short shrift because it's all, you know, uh, responsibility is laid at God's feet. It's, it's quite twisted, but again, it's our emotional needs, right, in play. Emotional needs have nothing to do with logic and reason uh, or makings, and they don't have to make sense. So, um, you know, so that's kind of what happens. And it's just one of the stages people go through in trying to stop or control the inevitable. And eventually, they come through a depression and acceptance stage and you know, that and can kind of deal with it that way. So that's my answer. You, you know, you tell me what you think, but uh, that's how I see it from a psychological perspective. All right, let's do some flash answers. Diane Ledbetter, why are Scientologist Sea Org members still wearing masks and gloves? Because they're being told to. Because David Miscavige and Scientology have whatever weirdo conspiracy beliefs they've got. And I guess David Miscavige is a little bit of a germaphobe or something and doesn't want anybody getting sick. And so they still run uh, with the, you know, extreme version of everything because that's what cults do. Let's remember, cults are always about dialing things up to 11. Everything has to be extreme. And that's no different in Scientology for sure. Logamug. People know about the steel plates hidden in the bunker and that there is a secret manuscript for Excalibur. However, are there any other strange or special Scientology artifacts or relics? I mean, not really. You know, there's, uh, there are a lot of things that were L. Ron Hubbard's that have been preserved or recreated and, and enshrined in museums uh, around the world, all the different places that Hubbard uh, occupied or lived 
in South Africa and Bayhead, New Jersey and, and uh, Phoenix, Arizona. They have the L. Ron Hubbard houses where they've sort of put artifacts together, reconstructed them or got the originals. L. Ron Hubbard's uh, extensive collection of cameras is kept in uh, in some kind of museum quality setup, I think at, at gold or somewhere in some confidential place. So they have stuff like that, but it's really just uh, Hubbard stuff. Jan Beal, are there any Hubbard policies for OTs that they do not use their new powers against Scientology in the form of manipulating the e-meter or the auditor, for example, in security checks? Or asked in another way, do OTs believe that they could influence Scientology technology if necessary? No, not really. Um, in fact, Hubbard sort of addressed this, I believe. I'm remembering, I, I'd, I'd be very strained to find the exact place I, rem I remember this from. But there was a lecture where Hubbard talks about the fact that, you know, the degree of control required to control an e-meter needle with energy flows would be insane because it's tractor beams and presser beams. That's how thetans push and pull and control a body. And um, at least that's how Hubbard kind of explains it in 1952 when he, you know, talked about this at all. He later talked about other methods of control of a body that involved gold discs or balls that you could sort of perceive. And again, it's all very weird. It's sort of this marionette kind of operation. And Scientologists are not in Scientology, especially when they are believers. See, the whole premise of your question is that, you know, are Scientologists trying to fool the e-meter? No, they're generally not. Uh, it does happen. It, it absolutely does happen. I saw it on the RPF, for example, where people could rub their feet in a particular way and get the needle to look like it was doing this little floating deal, right, to be able to get through the questions faster. So they were cheating the system. Um you know, so you, so yeah, that could happen. But as far as using their OT powers, nah, nobody's, nobody's doing anything like that. At least not that I ever heard, right? The way you manipulate an e-meter is you decide what thoughts you're going to think. And if you want to think your way into getting a floating needle, then you remember very pleasant things. You put yourself in a headspace of calm and joy and happiness. And you try really hard to bring those kinds of sensations and emotions to yourself so that the needle will chill out and kind of do this little floating thing. And that's as close as most Scientologists get to trying to control an e-meter. There you go. All right, folks. So that was our show for this week. I hope you found my answers, uh, even if they were a little intense this week, I still hope you found them educational, informative, and entertaining. Uh, that is always the goal here on this show. And uh, with that, let's go ahead and wrap up. I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.